Our scripture reading this morning is coming from Luke's gospel in chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, murmured. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of God, the, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we've been worshiping you today and rejoicing in your goodness to us. Your love has been predominant in our thoughts and your sacrifice for us around the table. And we say, oh Lord, thank you. Now we pray as we gather to hear your word that we, we, we would be able to see ourselves in scripture. But most importantly, see you and that amazing love that transcends our comprehension and that lasts for all eternity. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law and open our hearts to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some exceptional words in the English language, and uh, one of my favorites is onomatopoeia. It's one of my favorites because it took me a long time to learn it, and now I can say it. You may not know what it is unless you're an English major, but it's a word that sounds like the noise it makes, onomatopoeia. So one of those words would be sizzle. It sounds, the word sounds uh, like the noise it makes. Or boing, or murmur. Now let's try just a little experiment uh, this morning. I would like all of you to say something intelligent to the person next to you if you're speaking to them. If not, you can just sit this one out. <laughs> but don't say it loud, just a low voice, say something to the person next to you right now. Okay, let's stop this exercise. 
I think that worked. You were a little soft. Some of you were nervous and you were laughing and uh, that blew the experiment. That's okay. <laughs> but that was a murmuring sound. You can't hear what others are saying, but they're saying something intelligent. But in the crowd, there is a murmur. That's exactly what happened to Jesus when he would speak. Here in Luke 15, verse 1, tax collectors and sinners were all gathered eagerly to hear the Lord Jesus speak. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, or those who are called scribes, murmured. And what they were saying to one another is even given to us in the scripture. It's an accusation of the most grievous kind. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They said it under their breath so as not to let Jesus hear, but they didn't know that Jesus hears it all. Is that a horrible thing? to welcome sinners and eat with them. There are two groups of people here. In verse one, you have the tax collectors and sinners. These people were notorious and infamous uh, for their sin, their scandalous lives. They were guilty of obvious sins of the flesh, whether it be immorality or greed, they were guilty of obvious sins and they knew it. The Pharisees were religious heroes and the scribes, the teachers of the law, honored. They were famous for their deep devotion to the law of God, the rabbinic law, and the Torah. The Pharisees were guilty of hidden sins and they didn't know it. It's interesting, isn't it? When you think about society, there are basically two types of people. Those who have problems and know it, and those who have problems and don't. Which one are you in? You wouldn't expect the sinners to hear Jesus gladly, but they did. And you would expect the religious people to hear him eagerly, but they didn't. Everything seems to be topsy-turvy. And as far as I can tell, whenever Jesus was invited to eat with sinners... He accepted the dinner invitation, never turned it down. And that made the religious people mad. This is a parable designed to smoke out the Pharisees in every evangelical church, in every era. And they're here today. It's fascinating to me that verse three says, so Jesus told them a parable. In the context, it's referring to the Pharisees who with that indictment said, Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. Now you're going to get one parable. It's a singular in the original, but there are three aspects to this singular parable. It's like three different musical instruments all playing a different sound but playing the same tune. It's like a, a, a theater stage production with three acts but there's one singular central message. And that's the message I want all of us to get today and it's 
pretty clear to see. Charles Dickens called this parable the greatest short story that was ever written. And of the 40 parables or so that Jesus gave, this is perhaps the most popular. And it starts out in verse four. Suppose you had 100 sheep. We read this a moment ago. But you lose one. Doesn't the shepherd go after the 90 and nine? Or go after the one and leave the 90 and nine uh, back in the fold? Imagine yourself a shepherd. Now, this was very offensive to the Pharisees and I think Jesus enjoyed getting under their skin occasionally. Suppose you were a shepherd. But that doesn't relate to us because none of us are shepherds, but what if I were to say to you, suppose you lost your dog, this dog you love dearly. Would you not begin a frantic search and I'm not suggesting you have 99 other dogs at home, but you would leave everyone, everything else at home, everything, every, every other responsibility, you would go after that dog. You'd put posters on every pole throughout the town. You would bother your neighbors. I've lost the dog. You've seen it. Have, have you seen it? Let me know if you do. And you would be frantic. There would be the agony of the loss, the torture of searching and not finding and then finally, the rush of joy when you find it. When you find it, you grab that dog, hold it tightly, and you walk home. And you tell everyone in the neighborhood, I found Fluffy. You call your family, you call your friends. But then Jesus puts a little twist on this story when he says in verse seven, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Now, that could be a middle, little bit leading, but if you study the scriptures, the 99 people who don't need to repent are people who don't think they need to repent. They really do. But they don't think they need to. And heaven rejoices over the one who does than over the 99 who think they don't need it. Now he goes in the same parable to the second act, the lost coin, that's verse eight. Suppose a woman, so first of all, suppose a shepherd. Now suppose a woman had 10 silver coins and loses one. Most likely this is part of a dowry, it's a set. You lose one, it's like losing them all. And she does the same thing. She lights the lamp, she sweeps the house, she diligently searches for it, and if you live in that house, you're involved in the search too. And the whole household is probably upset until that coin is found. And when she finds it, she calls her neighbors and says, rejoice with me, I've found the coin. Sounds like the first story. The agony of the loss, the heartbreak of the loss, and the torture of the search, and the rush of joy when something is found. And then Jesus says the same thing in the same way. The angel of God, angels of God rejoice when one sinner comes home. The Pharisees who are listening to this story and may not know it's about them at this point, are forced reluctantly to admit 
yeah, we don't like shepherds, but I can see how they'd be happy if they found the lost sheep. And we understand about a woman losing the dowry coin that may jeopardize her marriage, and we understand how she would look for it, and when she found it, she would rejoice and tell everyone to rejoice with her. Yeah, we get this, but what they didn't get is that this is a beautiful, spiritual, intellectual trap that Jesus is setting for them. He's bringing them along with these stories, and they're agreeing in their heart. And then Jesus says, third installment of the one parable there's a father who had two sons so you have a lost sheep you have a lost coin and now you're going to have a lost son that's exactly what he's called later on in the scripture there was a man who had two sons the younger said to his father father give me the share of my estate so he divided his property between them now that is a very bold and arrogant thing to do the father's still alive It's almost as though he's saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance right now. Which reveals in this younger son, we'll call this the sinner's heart, his selfishness. He had everything but wasn't satisfied. All he had that the father owned was his. Everything was his, yet he wanted more. And he demands the the estate. Now, it is interesting, too, that this story starts out in verse 12, not saying suppose, but there was a man. This probably actually happened, and maybe everyone knew the story. If the son demands the estate, the father has to liquidate immediately all his holdings at a significant loss in the midst of an economic downturn. And when you have to liquidate everything immediately, you're not going to get its true value. He had to sell livestock and maybe have an auction, perhaps building and land and and possessions divided up. And the eldest son gets two-thirds and the younger son gets one-third. But if the father is still living, he only gets one-fifth. So 20% of a reduced estate And the son says, I don't care. Give me what's coming to me. And notice the scripture says, verse 12, so the father divided the property. It doesn't say anything about him resisting, but I can imagine he was greatly grieved. Verse 13 says, not long after that, the younger son got everything together, all that he had, set out for a distant country, and he squandered his wealth in riotous, wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need for the very first time in his life. You know, some people (laughs) have had everything given to them and they don't know what need is all about. So occasionally God sends something like, I don't know, a pandemic to let people know how dependent we are and how weak we are. So this young man hired himself to a citizen of the country who sent him in the fields to feed pigs. Now, if he is a young Jewish boy, this makes it even worse. 
And he was so hungry, he longed to fill his stomach with the carob pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. A selfish heart. God often gives us what we want so that we can recognize what we need. Give me my estate. That's not what you need. And that will not bring true happiness to your heart. I'm reminded of that psalm, Psalm 106, verse 15, that says, he gave them, Israel, their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. It won't satisfy. The things of this world cannot satisfy you because you're made for heaven and designed for God. And if you are satisfied by the things of this world, that's an even greater judgment. He despised his birthright like Esau. He was now broke and lonely and hungry and humiliated. So he now has a broken heart. And that's good. A broken heart is good. You say, I don't like to have a broken heart. I didn't say it's fun. I said it's good. Because brokenness is the first step to realizing we're away from God. And we need to turn and go back. When he came to his senses, verse 17, isn't that great? When he came to his senses, it is insane to run away from your father. You say, who are you talking about? The heavenly father or the earthly father? It's the same in this text. The boy said, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to spare? And I'm starving to death. Verse 18, I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your servants. So he got up and he went home. He realized his father's house was better. He made a resolution, I'm going to return. He repented, I have sinned. And he was humble because he recognized I'm not worthy. He didn't come back and say, okay, dad, take me back. I want my status again. I want all the possessions I lost. I know you've got more. Give, give me. None of that. God doesn't take delight in our sacrifices if our heart is not right with him. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. So what you have is Jesus using the young, younger son's heart to express the heart of the sinners that we were introduced to in verse one. Tax collectors, prostitutes are connected in that broad category of the lowest of the low, the sinners. And now we come to the father's heart. This is verse 20. So the son got up and went to his father, not knowing exactly what to expect. I mean, he had humiliated his father in the eyes of, of all his father's friends. A proud man does not easily forgive, nor forget. 
According to Deuteronomy 21, it's very possible that this son could have been killed by his father or even by the neighbors because he had broken the law and was guilty. But this father wasn't like that. And maybe he sat by his window waiting for his son to return all of these many days or months or weeks to protect his son from an avenging neighbor. It's hard to live around self-righteous people. It's hard to worship in a church with self-righteous people. But the problem is we're all self-righteous. So what does the father do? Surprising. The scripture tells us while he was still, the young boy was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, verse 20. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and began to kiss him, all of which is improper for an old man to do. To run, to kind of bow down before his son, undignified. But he does it. And what do we see about the father's heart? He was patient, not proud. He's compassionate, not vindictive. And by kissing him repeatedly, he's showing that he's got a great heart of love for his son. Although his son had been away from the father's house, he had never been away from the father's heart. And what you have to do in this story is begin to make the switch over to the father, your father in heaven. And you are the young son who has sinned. And you are the arrogant one who wanted all that God would offer and run away and use it like you wish until you come to your senses. Until I come to my senses broken and needy and I come back to my father. And what can I expect? If I were the father, I might say something like this. First of all, I wouldn't talk to him for a while, right? Let him stay outside, stay in the barn. But when I did talk to him, I'd probably say, where have you been? What'd you do with my money? What gall you have to come back and think that I'm going to take you back into my home? But the situation was so bad outside the father's house, he longed to be back in even as a servant. Desperate enough to give up everything to come back to the father's house. But the father didn't act like me, thankfully. In the far country, the young man experienced misery, but coming home, he discovers mercy. And what is this father doing? He's welcoming sinners and eating with them because he said, let's kill the fatted calf and celebrate, right? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment 
That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, and all your sin is forgiven. Yes, I can't forget my sin. That's the problem. But God can, because he washes it all away by the sacrifice of his son. Today, behold, the Father's love for your sinning heart. Amazing. You deserve death but he offers you life. I deserve eternal punishment, but he gave me grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's the story of Jesus. That's the story of the cross. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And Jesus comes to save. And the father has a forgiving heart. It was the son's action to return but it was the Father's action to restore, and he forgave him. Isn't it interesting? The Father says, the Son comes back and he starts his spiel. Father, I've sinned against you in heaven no longer to be worthy to be called your son. He couldn't even finish it. The rest of it was, and just take me as a servant. But the Father stopped him and said to his servants, quick, verse 22, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Sinners are dead in their sins and lost. And when God gives mercy to us, we are found and made alive. So God's heart is patient and compassionate and loving and forgiving and we could add a whole lot more. (laughs) I love this story and I think I saw it in Doris uh, Goodwin Kern's book, uh, A Team of Rivals, written about Abraham Lincoln who made his cabinet, it was made up of people who had opposed him running for president and people were against him and he made them his cabinets and cabinet members and won them over. But they argued a lot and Lincoln seemed to win most of those debates. But near the end, after the Civil War was over, the question was asked, how are you going to treat the Southern states and people when they come back? And Lincoln famously said, I will treat them as if they never left. Wow, that's like God. How am I gonna be treated when I come back and confess my sin? You'll be treated as if you've never left. Sin is gone and you are forgiven. And that's the loving heart of God for you and for me. That's mercy. Now there is one other heart we have to look at Quickly, verse 25, the older son was in the field and he heard the music and dancing and he called one of his servants and said, what's going on? The servant said, don't you know, your younger brother's back and he's safe. And your father's killed the fatted calf and everyone is celebrating. And the older son became angry. The Pharisee's heart. (laughs) If they didn't know it, Earlier, now Jesus has brought the 
trapped to completion. And he's talking about the Pharisee's heart by this older son. And I'm sure someone got a clue and thought, is he talking about us? <laughs> certainly is. The religious people who love to criticize, who think that they're righteous, and look down their spiritual noses at those who sin, as if they never do. So he refused to go in. I'm not going in. And then when the father came out, the son said, the older son, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Never? <laughs> I've never met a son who's never disobeyed his father's orders. Remember, this is the religious people speaking to their heavenly father. And you never gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Never gave you anything? You've, you've got two-thirds of the estate. Remember that? And you're the older son. You'll be in charge. Verse 30, but when this son of yours who has squandered his property with prostitutes comes home. We don't know if that's true. Could have been. But when you're trying to make someone look bad, you throw in a bunch of stuff whether it's true or not. Warren Worsby said something very interesting. We often complain most loudly about sins we wish we could commit ourselves. I don't know if that's true, but you better not complain too publicly about sins. People can read you like a book. He was angry, no sympathy. Your son, not my brother. He's self-righteous. I've never disobeyed you, and this son has done nothing but disobey you. You never gave me anything. You know, the self-righteous people always feel that they're not treated as they deserve. They should have more. And the father who ran to the prodigal son now pleads with the pouting son and says, we have to celebrate because that's what heaven does when sinners come home. Many misunderstand the true nature of the gospel. They think that the gospel has to do with me being good and that's how I get into heaven. But the true nature of the gospel says, no, no, we're all unsavable. There is no hope in us. There's no hope in you, but I've done a whole lot of good things. Doesn't make any difference. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he makes me white as snow. This amazing spiritual transaction when I by faith trust the Lord and he washes all my sin away. The gospel is good news for sinners like us. Oh, you're not a sinner? You're not that bad? You found yourself in the story. Hello, older son. You say, pastor, you just offended me. I don't know who you are. It makes it safer. But I didn't offend you. God's going after you. And you need Christ. 
and you need him now. Everyone in this chapter experiences joy except the older son. And there's a lot of religious people who cannot rejoice. When you think about it, there are really three sons in this story. There's the younger son who returned, the older son who is self-righteous, and God's son who rejoices when sinners repent. Jesus was saying, yeah, I welcome sinners and eat with them because that's exactly what the father does. And I've got the father's heart. You say, oh, I wish I, I knew how this story ended. We do. The gospels tell us the older son kills the father. In biblical times, it was the religious leaders who killed the Lord Jesus. But what we need to realize is that this, this is all for mercy. We sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you full of pity, grace, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Bring your broken heart to the loving heart of God and he will save you now. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will deal with some hearts today. Sinners' hearts. Selfish, rebellious people. That's all of us who go our own way and forget about the Father's love and then when we come to our senses, we return, we repent, we have remorse and sorrow for what we've done and we feel our need of him and we come. Lord, show us the Father's heart in all its glory and beauty. And for some today, Lord, who are here who are religious but lost, Yes, religious, and thinking that their religion will save them, but they're truly lost. Wake, their, wake them up, their heart, their spiritual understanding, and let them see the cross. Let them understand that their sins were nailed to that cross, and their only hope is to turn to Christ for mercy. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.